Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Cullamunda Church of Christ. Really praying this podcast blesses you. If you'd like to hear more of our story, how about you go to our webpage, cullamunda.church. Thank you. It's great to be here in, um, on this uh, Resurrection Sunday. That's good, eh? Awesome. Well, are you ready for a story? Because I've got a good one. It's a familiar one. I'm sure you've heard it before. If you've been around churches for any length of time, you've probably heard it, or however old you are, you've probably heard it that many times, because it's a story we tell every year, and of course it's the resurrection story. And this morning, it's my kind of goal or my uh, idea that we would walk through this story together and just stop along the way to consider a few things that stood out to me as I reflected on it in these past couple of weeks. And it's my prayer that you'd be blessed as you hear this story again. Now, I'd invite you to follow along, but I'm reading from Matthew, Mark, Luke and John simultaneously. So that could be a little bit difficult for you if you've got your Bible open, because what I've put together for us this morning is what is called a synthesised harmony. That sounds complicated, doesn't it? But basically, I've taken the four gospel narratives and woven them together to give a complete story of what happened at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So... My invitation for you is to listen. Some of you will know that each of the gospel writers bring a slightly different perspective and they include different details, but when we weave them together, it becomes a rich tapestry that when we sit in it, when we allow ourselves to have the words of this story wash over us, when we immerse ourselves in the truth that it contains, there's so much to hear and learn And it's my prayer that you might discover something new today as I have this week about this well-known and well-loved and most important part of God's greatest story. Are we ready to go? Excellent. So there are three stories this morning and I'm just going to kind of add a few comments between, between the first two. First story, empty tomb. It was late in the afternoon on the day of preparation, the day before Passover, when Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, who were sitting in the garden, saw Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus place his lifeless body in the tomb. In the fading light of that awful day, they watched as a very large stone was rolled in front of the tomb, sealing it shut. And then early... The following Sunday morning, just as the sun was rising, Mary Magdalene, the mother of James, uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, went to the tomb where Jesus had been placed in order to anoint his body with spices. As they were walking together before the sun came up, they asked one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? At that moment, and quite suddenly, there was a very big earthquake And an angel came down from heaven and rolled the stone away and sat on it. And his face shone like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. And the guards who had been placed at the entrance of the tomb to guard it were shocked and full of fear when they saw the angel and they fainted. When the women arrived at the entrance of the tomb, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away and they were both amazed and alarmed at the same time. The angel spoke to them, do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying. 
the woman could indeed see that the tomb was empty. The angel continued, Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you you would before he died. So the, woman, the women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered. And as they went, they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. And they went as fast as they could to find Peter and the other disciples, telling them everything that they had seen and heard. But some of the disciples had a hard time believing what they were hearing. In the meantime, the guards who had fainted at the appearance of the angel came to their senses. They got up and they ran as fast as they could into the city to find the leading priests to tell them what had happened. A meeting with the elders was called and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say this, that Jesus' disciples came during the night whilst we were sleeping and they stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we will stand up for you so that you won't get into trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were told to say and that's how the story that Jesus' disciples had stolen the body from the tomb spread like wildfire throughout the city. But as soon as Peter and John heard the news, they both started running towards the tomb. John outran Peter and reached the tomb first and as soon as he got there, he looked in and saw the linen burial clothes lying there. But he didn't go in. When Peter finally caught up, he ran right past John and went straight into the tomb. He also noticed the linen burial cloths lying there. Cautiously, John followed Peter into the tomb. And when he saw that the tomb was really empty, he believed. After this, they returned to their homes in the city. But Mary stayed behind. Tears began to stream down her face. She was confused. Who had taken the body of her Lord away? It didn't make sense. I'm always intrigued by the raw, uh, the rawness of the honesty of this part of the story. When you read the four different gospel accounts, you get a glimpse from each of the gospel writers at, at what's going on in the life of those who are witnesses to this event. And in particular, interestingly, the, the women around who had been following Jesus. There's no attempt by the authors of this story or the, the people who were kind of retelling these historical events to hide the fear and bewilderment that the people in the story were feeling. There is doubt. There is confusion, there's grief, there's heartache and pain. And all of those things, when you read the story, are very tangible if you pay attention to them. There's a very real sense of the depth of grief and loss experienced by those who had known and loved Jesus. They'd lost more than a friend. They'd lost more than a brother, more than a son. They'd actually lost hope. This Jesus of Nazareth, a teacher who had called so many to follow him. He'd been like a beacon of shining light in a very, very dark world. His very words and his actions, everything that he did and said in the past three and a half years or so, uh, had all served to strengthen his claim on who he said he was, the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
Since the time of Moses, in fact, Israel had been expecting a deliverer. They'd been hoping someone who would come and defeat the nation's enemies, someone who would come and restore the kingdom of Israel back to its former glory once and for all and put things that were wrong in the world right. Many of those who were following Jesus had believed that he would be the one they had hoped. This Jesus was the promised Messiah. He had to be. His words had heavenly authority. His miracles verified his connection to his father, God. But now he was dead. Betrayed by his own people. Crucified by the Romans. His body laying in the cold darkness of a borrowed tomb. Except it wasn't. The tomb was empty (laughs) and his body was missing. When you step back to consider what's going on in this part of the story, if you dare yourself to connect emotionally and and, um, even physically to the characters in the story, and I invite you to do that when you reread this story yourselves again, but when you connect at a deep level with the characters, you, you can not only feel their grief, but you can sense their loss of hope, can't you? All that they had hoped for. And as we heard brilliantly this morning during the communion, they, they'd been told, they knew, and they had an inkling, although I'm not sure how clear it was for all of them, but in the midst of grief and great turmoil, they forgot. And we're all prone to doing that. We can relate to that, can't we? And that's easy to see, I think, where the fear and the confusion comes from in, the, in that moment. Can you, can you even place yourself there to imagine what it would be like? In the midst of all of this, there was one thing that really stood out to me in this part of the story. Something that I must confess that I've never really paid a lot of attention to before, which is I was surprised by it because it's actually really important. But as I reflected on this part of the story, not just the significance of an empty tomb, but the invitation to view it as empty really stood out to me this year. When the women arrived at the entrance to the tomb, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away. They were amazed and alarmed at the same time. The angel spoke to them, do not be afraid. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified But he isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. And here's the invitation. Come, see where his body was lying. On their way to their tomb earlier that morning, the women had talked together about who would remove the stone for them because by all accounts it was extremely big and heavy. They had brought with them oils and spices to anoint the body, um, to honour the deceased, which was uh, an interesting custom. We know from a previous part of the story, although we didn't read it, that when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus went to um, the authorities and and asked for the body of Jesus and they released the body of Jesus to them, they they took the body in quite a rush because uh, the sunset was coming on the day of preparation And we hear that Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus was the religious leader that met secretly with Jesus at night in Jerusalem all those years ago. Um, He had bought a large amount or very expensive amount of uh, anointing oil and and perfume. 
and the custom was that when you buried a body, you would wrap it in, in big long sheets of linen um, and, and in between those layers you would put this anointing oil and, if, and it was not just to honour uh, the body but it was, it was, let's just be honest, it was to help mask the smell. But it was, it was about cleansing and it was about ritual and it was very important. And yet here we have the women coming again with more anointing oils and spices. And I, at first I thought this is very intriguing. But when I did a bit of research on it, it seems that there was also another tradition that if someone was to be particularly honoured, particularly a rabbi or a teacher or someone of high standing, then you would go every three or four days or perhaps every week and add more spices and oils to keep the smell down. Because the, the smell of decay was a dishonour to that person. And I think it speaks of their love and respect to him and they were coming to do that. The story told us that Jesus' body was placed in the tomb late on the afternoon of the day of preparation, which was the day before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover. The day after Passover was a Sabbath, a Saturday, so the women had to wait for the following day, which was a Sunday, Hence the three nights and three days he was in the tomb before they could go to the tomb. Now I'm not sure who they thought was going to help them move the stone. They, they talked about it, didn't they? Who's, who's going to help us move the stone? Yet they, they were going there nonetheless. Who's going to help us? We can use our imaginations. Perhaps they thought that out of the goodness of their hearts, the guards would help them. <laughs> Maybe a gardener or a passerby. But nonetheless, they were going anyway. As it turns out, they didn't need any help. Because when they arrived at the tomb, the stone was already removed. By an angel, no less. Can you imagine being there? Can you picture the scene? Listen carefully again to what the angel tells the women. Do not be afraid. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying. Do you see the invitation? Come, see where his body was lying. You know, and it occurred to me as I thought about this invitation that the angel didn't roll the stone away to let Jesus out. He rolled the stone away to let people in. That just blew my mind. It blew my mind. It was rolled away to let people in. You see, Jesus was already gone. He'd already risen from the dead at the end of his three days and three nights. They were coming in the morning. The stone was rolled away so that the evidence of an empty tomb could be witnessed by all humanity. Praise the Lord for that, eh? So what's the significance of an empty tomb, you might ask? Why does it matter? Well, to put it simply, it serves as a symbol. In the same way that the cross serves as a symbol. You see, the cross itself, the piece of wood that Jesus was nailed to, um, has no power in and of itself. It's just a piece of wood. But what it represents has power. And we know what it represents. The cross represents the, the, the atoning sacrifice of the Lamb of God, who is Jesus. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of sin for not just many, but for all who would believe. And so the cross serves as a symbol of the, of the, of the atonement, the forgiveness of sin that is possible through uh, faith in Jesus. 
In the same way, an empty tomb serves as a symbol of resurrection. Through resurrection, which literally means to be reanimated, it's lit, the literal sense of the word is that it's not a ghost who has now appeared from a dead body. It's not an apparition or a vision. It is a reincarnation of a living person. They have come back to life in, in their fullness. The empty tomb is a symbol of the resurrection. And through the resurrection, Jesus demonstrated his power and victory over death. You might think, well, how does that work? Well, it's actually more simple than you think. He was dead. He was really dead. And now he is really alive. That's power. That's power. That's more power than it takes to create. Because that's recreating. (laughs) It's reanimating. And the empty tomb is a symbol of the resurrection. But the empty tomb in and of itself, the hole cut into the ground covered by a rock, has no power in and of itself. It's just a symbol. A symbol of the power that Jesus has over death. And the tomb is empty because death could not hold him. Because death had no power over him. This is the core principle of the gospel message. It's what, the, uh, it's what the apostles taught when they preached their first sermons in Acts. They didn't so much speak about the cross, they talked about it, but they spoke about the resurrection. It's the core principle of our faith. Because when you believe that Jesus died in your place for the forgiveness of your sin on, on the cross, which symbolises that, and when you place your faith in the finished work of the resurrection, you actually join with him in the new life that is now possible because he rose from the dead. Do you see how it works? That gives us a great hope, I think, I believe. Because not only does it point forward to a future life, it invites us to live our lives to the full now, in the here, in the present, as God intended. One author put it this way, and I like his play on words. Listen carefully, he says... The resurrection life is the life we live after we die that we get to live before we die. Do you like that? The resurrection life is the life that we live after we die that we get to live before we die. I like it. It's the type of life that Jesus calls his disciples and us to when he's talking, when he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. You know, as a church, we've we've started that series. I hope you're enjoying that. But do you recall what he said in in Matthew chapter 4? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is... is," He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven, the the kingdom realm or, or, or heaven's kingdom rule is now available for you to grab hold of. It's here. You can touch it. It's here because of me. And it has its fulfillment in the resurrection. The new life that Jesus gives us because he rose from the dead gives us this life as well. But Mary wasn't thinking about any of that. Her grief was overwhelming. And none of what had happened this morning really made any sense to her yet. 
Second story, appearance. Peter and John left the garden tomb and returned to their homes in the city. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying and as she wept, she stooped in to look, she stooped to look in again. This time she saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. One of the angels asked her, "Woman, why are you crying?" Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. Her grief was overwhelming and, as, and she turned to leave. But as she did, she saw someone else standing just outside the tomb. The man asked her, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? She assumed that he was the gardener, so she asked him, Sir, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get his body. Mary, Jesus said. Mary. In an instant, she spun around and cried out, Rabboni, which means great teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But instead, go now and find my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your, to your God. So Mary went and found the other disciples. I have seen the Lord, she said. And she told them everything that Jesus had said. Have you ever had that experience when you're reading the Bible or going through a, a, a story like this where a certain phrase or word just kind of jumps out and grabs hold of your attention? Have you ever had that experience and you just can't let it go? You'll try to read on, but you can't. You always come back to it. You try to kind of think about other things, but you can't because that one word or one phrase just holds kind of a central place in your thinking. I had that experience this week around this part of the story. You see, in the previous story, we heard that the angel who rolled the stone away spoke um, to the startled women saying, do not be afraid. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. Now, compare that to the question that the angel asks Mary the second time. Why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? See the difference? And at first, I must confess that I was perplexed by this question. I mean, why would Jesus ask Mary a question like this? We know from the story that Mary does not recognise the man standing outside the tomb. She thinks he's the gardener. Um, and, so, and I think her response is totally, totally, totally understandable. She's overwhelmed with grief and sadness. She's been crying, probably uncontrollably, and she's tired and emotionally drained. Have you ever been there? When you're in that state, you, nothing makes sense sometimes. But as I thought about it, it occurred to me that what Jesus was doing here is actually deeply personal for her. Mary, along with the other women, has gone to the tomb expecting to find a body. That's why they were going. That's why they were bringing herbs and spices and oils. They expected to find a body, the body of Jesus. When they discovered that the body wasn't there, even though the angel that they saw the first time had assured them that he had in fact risen and was alive, they were filled with doubt and confusion. In fact, the story tells us they fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered. And yet here she was a second time. Everyone else had gone home. She was totally alone, except she wasn't. Have you ever had one of those moments, I have these a bit too often, I'm afraid to say, 
where you desperately want for something to be true, <laughs> even though you know it's possibly not. Oh, good, I'm not alone. <laughs> Let me explain, because that makes me sound really weird. <laughs> like when you lose your phone, or your purse, or your wallet, or your, or your, or your keys, or something that's actually really important, like a, like a birth certificate, um, or a large sum of money, or a gold chain. You know, you, you've all had that experience where you've lost something, or someone's lent something to you, and you've put it... Guys are good at this. You put it in a safe place. <laughs> Have you ever had that experience where you've turned the house upside down and inside out and you've looked in every drawer and under every blanket and you've looked in all the cupboards, even the ones you never go into because that's where the vacuum cleaner lives and you've looked absolutely <laughs> everywhere and once you've done that, you go over the house again and look in all the same places again and then when you've done that, you do it all again. Then you go to the shed and then you go back to the house. and you know what I'm talking about? Oh, good. Oh, good. You look and you look and you look, just willing the missing item to be there. Oh, we've all done it, I'm sure. I'm putting myself on the line here. <laughs> you know it's not there because you've looked five times already, but you open the drawer and in your mind you're going, please be there, please be there, please be there. Oh, damn, it's not there. <laughs> you know that experience? I can't help but wonder if that's what Mary is doing here, actually. In her grief and despair, she looks into the empty tomb one last time because she's looking for something. Except this time she sees two angels. One of the angels asks her, woman, why are you crying? Because they have taken my Lord away, she says, and I don't know where they have put him or I don't know where they have put the body. See, Mary is still looking for a body. But now the reality is beginning to really sink in for her. He's not only dead, but he's gone. He's, miss he's missing. And so she turns to leave. And as I think about what it would be like for Mary at this point in the, in the story, I just get a real sense that her last drop of hope just drained away at that very moment. It just went. And that's when she notices a man who she thinks is the gardener. And he asks her, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? You see, what Jesus does, and you know, she, gives, she mumbles some answer, look, if you've taken him away, then tell me where he is, I'll go and get him. But what Jesus does next is profoundly restorative, restorative, profoundly. He speaks her name, Mary. Mary. We don't know from the text what the inflection is that's added to this word. Do you know what an inflection is? Like the, the tone or the way it's said which gives it meaning? How did that word come out of Jesus' mouth? Mary. We don't know, we can only guess, but I think the story gives us a clue because Mary's response hints at the power of the calling of her name and we certainly see its effects on her. In an instant, she spun around and cried out, Rabboni. Now you might be sitting there thinking, well, so what? But let me tell you what Rabboni means. You see, because Mary's response gives us an insight, I think, into understanding the nature of the question that Jesus has asked her, who are you looking for? 
We know from the Gospels that Jesus was given the title Rabbi. Now, whether that was official or just something that was attached to him is, is something to be debated. But traditionally, to be ascribed the title of Rabbi, you had to have been um, authorised or given the title of Rabbi as someone who was not only qualified but or, or authorised to teach and have disciples. So if that was you, if you were a teacher of the law or a teacher of wisdom or whatever it was and, and the, uh, the ruling powers deemed that you are okay to be a rabbi, then the title would be ascribed to you and that would authorise you to teach in your specified area and have disciples. And the implication of having disciples is not just that there'll be some people who follow you. The implication is that it's a bit like having an apprentice. The implication is that if you have disciples, they will take your teaching and multiply it themselves. They would become what you are. That was the implication. There's actually a whole ceremony involved in becoming a rabbi. It's, it's quite, uh, it's quite um, elaborate. But there's another level. There's actually three levels. There's one below rabbi, then there's rabbi, and then there's rabboni. You see, rabbi literally means teacher or master. Rabboni literally means my great teacher or my great master. And it's only ever ascribed to people who had a set of disciples, not once, but twice. So you've had one lot of disciples, and they have qualified and gone out and multiplied your ministry, and then you take on another set of disciples. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like if you own a business and you've had more than one apprentice, then you go up a level. <laughs> you level up. You, you become, and I guess you become a master tradesman. But in this case, it's a, a great teacher or a great master. And this was a title conferred to men who had seen two or more generations of disciples. So by ascribing the title Rabboni, or, or Rabboni to Jesus, Mary is actually paying him the greatest of honours and respects. You see, she had gone back to the tomb looking for something, a body. She wanted answers. But Jesus invites Mary to look for a someone. And when he asks her, who are you looking for? And when she recognises his voice and he calls her name Mary, in that instant, all her hope returns. All her fear is dispelled. I'm not sure that she fully understands it, but all her hope returns and all her fear is dispelled and she cries out and ascribes to her master, her teacher, the one who had saved her. Remember her story, Mary Magdalene, possessed by seven evil spirits, set free. She knew what it was like to be under masters. She'd lived most of her life under masters and her life was horrible tormented she was set free from that and found a new master Jesus the Messiah son of God who loved her and taught her and encouraged her and lifted her up in a society that put people down gave her a hope and a purpose and a calling and then he was ripped away from her and all her hope disappeared you see where this is going and then suddenly he's back I think in her mind she's going, I have a second chance. I was his disciple once, now I can be his disciple again, Rabboni. Let's go again. You're back. 
it's a great honour to be called that. When she hears a voice, when she hears his voice call her name, Mary, she responds immediately. And in that moment, her hope is instantly restored and she is overcome with joy. In a moment, I'm going to finish just with the third part of the story and I don't really have any comments on that. We're just going to finish with it. But as I do, I, I, it's my prayer that you would reread and rehear this story from the perspective of some of the characters in it and what it might have meant for them to lose Jesus and then have him back. And ultimately what it means for us. It might be that you've never considered the implications of an empty tomb and what it stands for, what it represents. In one sense, as Christians, we shouldn't wear crosses. We should wear little empty tombs. <laughs> I guess it's not as... I don't know, it doesn't maybe just sell as much. But do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm being a bit silly there, but really, that's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel. We have new life. And we can walk in new life because Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death, which is the consequence or you know, the consequence of sin. All of this undoes what happened in the Garden of Eden. And we get to live in it now. That's what Jesus is teaching on the Sermon in the Mount. We get to live this way now. So maybe it's the empty tomb that is significant for you this morning. Or maybe, and I pray that it is for some of you, that all your life you've been looking for something in this thing called faith. And actually Jesus is inviting you to look for a someone. There's no power in a wooden cross. It, it represents something powerful. There's no power in a hole in the ground with a stone in front of it. It represents something so much more powerful. Stop looking for things. Start looking for someone. And hear Jesus call your name. Mary. And dare, dare to respond like she did. Let me close this morning with the third story, which is called Witness. Later that same day, Jesus appeared to Peter. He also appeared to Cleopas and another disciple as they were walking home to Emmaus from Jerusalem. And when the two of them realised that it was Jesus, they ran all the way back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples. As they were telling their story of how Jesus had appeared to them, Jesus himself suddenly appeared among them. Peace be with you. Oh, I would love to be in that room when that happened. Peace be with you, he said. Everyone in the room was startled and frightened. They thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked them. Great question, Jesus. Why are you frightened? Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. And as he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still they stood there in disbelief, yet they were filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. 
after he had eaten, he said to them, When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms had to be fulfilled. It was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And this is the message. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. Matthew chapter 4, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. I read it just before. From that time on, the beginning of his ministry, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is just right there. You can touch it because it's here, because I am. And it has its fulfilment in this moment. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent, for all who turn away from their sin and turn to God and reach out and grab heaven's kingdom rule in their life. Looking around the room at all who were gathered there, he said, and he says this to you as well, you are witnesses to all of these things. You are witnesses to all of these things. And if you've known what it means in your life to turn from a life that doesn't honour God and return to Him, to accept the forgiveness that comes through the shedding of His blood on the cross, to understand the depth and the fullness of what it means to walk in new life because of the empty tomb, then you're a witness. You're as much a witness as Mary and Mary and Salome and Peter and the other disciples, the guys on the road to Emmaus, you're as much a witness to this truth as they were. You are witnesses of all of these things. It's my prayer this Easter, this year, that as the church we would live as a good witness to the truth and the power of the resurrection. Father, we thank you for your word, for this story, just one small episode in a grand narrative which tells us so much about not just who you are but what you're like, of your great love for us and your longing desire to have an intimate relationship with us again as it was designed to be in the first place and the lengths you went to to ensure that that was possible. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to sacrifice yourself on our behalf so that our sin could be forgiven. And we praise your holy name that you had the power over death and rose again 